Welcome to episode 853 of Effectively Wild, the daily podcast from Baseball Prospectus, presented by our Patreon supporters and the Baseball Reference Play Index. I'm Ben Lindbergh of 538, joined by Sam Miller of Baseball Prospectus. Hello. Yo. So this is the end. After our six-week odyssey, our trip through every team, we come to the Dodgers, the last team in our preview series. Later in this episode, Jeff Paternostro will be talking to Andy McCullough who covers the Dodgers for the LA Times. We are talking to the author of the Dodgers essay in the BP Annual and the West Coast editor for Vice Sports, Eric Nussbaum. Hey, Eric. Hey, how you guys doing? All right. So we all know all the things that the Dodgers have going for them, right? They have the highest payroll in baseball. They have the number one farm system in baseball, according to Baseball Prospectus. And they have the best projected winning percentage, according to Pakoda, by one point. So they pretty much have the present and the future covered. But you, in your essays, delved into sort of the, the holistic approach that they have really on the field and off the field and the way that they've tried to incorporate the past into the present team and try to sort of strengthen the brand or be true to the history of the team. Can you kind of lay out how they have gone about building a team in a way that is consistent with the Dodgers history? Sure. I mean, the Dodgers history is something that Dodger fans and sports columnists in the LA area will talk about a lot. Obviously it was the first, they were the first team West. They're the team of Jackie Robinson going back to Brooklyn they were the kind of one of the first great farm system teams. Branch Rickey kind of created that system with the Cardinals, but I think baseball history and especially Dodger historians and fans view him as a Dodger figure chiefly. They have a legacy of great pitching. So there's all these kind of elements to the Dodger brand, to the Dodger holistic aura that play into it that make Dodger fans feel superior and special. And I think that in some ways do make the organization a superior and special baseball team. I guess it makes it easier when your legacy is basically having good players. <laughs> then you can be true to your legacy without damaging your current team because past Dodgers teams were good. So you want to be true to past Dodgers teams by having good present Dodgers teams. That seems like a sound strategy. So this is Vin Scully's last season, unless he changes his mind. How are you planning to savor the last season of Scully and how well positioned do you think the Dodgers are for the succession? Not that there's really any way to handle that perfectly. I'm going to savor it by finally buying Time Warner Cable this year. (laughs) I've made that commitment. And as for the Dodgers, I don't think there really, as you said, is any way they can plan a succession. I think they can savor it by maybe going to the World Series. And after that, you just accept Charlie Steiner as your new overlord. What is the uh, what is the TV situation this year? So the Dodgers are on. If you have Time Warner Cable, you can get SNLA, the Dodgers station. Yesterday there were some more developments where Time Warner, who runs SNLA, is now going to offer it to Directv and other providers at a discounted rate, trying to put pressure on Directv to carry the network. So we'll see. Uh, the situation in layman's terms is that a lot of people in LA 
who aren't in the Time Warner coverage area can't watch the Dodgers. Shifting back to the field, as Ben noted, this is the last team preview we're doing because Pagoda liked the Dodgers the most. And uh, with playoff odds, with the simulations, that is technically still true by a sliver. But by the uh, by the standings, which are not playoff odds, which are just based on how many, basically how many wins uh, are on your roster prorated over the depth chart, the Dodgers have actually fallen behind the Cubs because of all these injuries, their depth chart has changed in the last few days with Andre Ethier being injured before that Brad Anderson being injured Mike Bolsinger being injured and uh, perhaps you know the real bomb might possibly be ticking with uh, Yasmani Grandal and I guess you can take this one of two ways you can say oh well the Dodgers are are certainly more vulnerable now than they were uh, and this is the problem of baseball is you're always you know injuries away from uh, from from losing all of your plans or you could say this is where the Dodgers' dominance is showing up most. They have so much depth uh, that pretty much everybody can be replaced by somebody who uh, would look totally uh, normal in another team's starting lineup or uh, rotation. Uh, so is there a single injury to the Dodgers, probably, presumably either Kershaw or, or Grandal, that you think would knock them out of out of the front runner position in the NL West? Is it conceivable that one bad ball could knock them you know, to second place or uh, are they so far ahead and have so much depth uh, that they are barring total catastrophe, uh, relatively uh, injury proof? I think Kershaw. I mean, he's he's not injured, but theoretically, the nightmare scenario. So then you're left with kind of Scott Casimir, Kenta Maeda, Alex Wood at the top of your rotation for now, and that that would be, I think, demoralizing more than more than anything else. Offensively, I don't think there's one player. They're so balanced. They're so deep. I mean, they pretty much. One last year without Yasiel Puig. They could do it this year, probably without Adrian Gonzalez if they needed to. They're just very balanced, kind of painfully balanced. It makes them interesting, but also kind of less interesting in some ways because you just feel like you have this mass of players that, that they're just throwing onto the roster and it's somehow working. Yeah, yeah. They uh, On our depth charts, they are above average at seven of the eight positions. And they're really, like, if you consider all-star level to be, you know, maybe three wins or higher than their all-star level at four. And uh, they have, uh, you know, they have, I would say, considerably better bench than just about everybody else in the league, which isn't really even taken into account. You mentioned Puig. What are, personally, your expectations for Puig this year and also, I guess, maybe for the life of his club control years? I think he's going to start hitting. I mean, he's just so talented and so good. It seems like this year the pressure is off, and I know he has a strange kind of tense relationship with Don Mattingly, which is weird in itself because you have to really try to have a tense relationship with John, Don Mattingly. But the fact that there's kind of less pressure on him, less limelight this year, encourages me. And just having seen what we've seen out of him as a baseball player, I'm inclined to believe he's going to be amazing this year and going forward. What do you think of the pitcher acquisition approach, you know, this offseason for a lot of people was defined by the loss of Zach Granke. And if the way they've constructed their rotation backfires, then a lot of people will point to that decision as a mistake. But of course, they they have built this depth and, and supposedly they have this edge in injury evaluation, or at least that seems like something that they want to cultivate. We've heard about it from Stan Conti in the past, and we've read about it in Jeff Passan's book, The Arm, about how they have hired up all these brilliant injury projectors and modelers and tried to identify ways to tell whether pitchers are going to get hurt. 
And yet, of course, they have signed a lot of pitchers who have gotten hurt. So is it a smart strategy for the Dodgers to try to get these guys who might be undervalued for health reasons? Or when you're the Dodgers, is that just getting too cute? I don't think it's getting too cute. I think it makes sense because if you're the Dodgers, you can afford to lose Brandon McCarthy or Brett Anderson for a season. That gives you, you have the financial capacity to to take chances like that that other teams couldn't take. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think the best strategy is getting the best player. So if you can get the best player, you should probably also do that which they didn't do this year. And in that sense, maybe it may be a little cute, but I don't mind kind of taking on these higher risk players as long as you're comfortable paying their salaries. And since it's not my money, I, you know, I enjoy watching Brad Anderson and Brandon McCarthy pitch, Scott Kazmir pitch. I'm a little bit concerned. I think no matter how much science you put into injury evaluation, there's not much you can do when players actually get injured other than weight and their pitching staff is in kind of brutal shape right now, injury-wise. You know, they have like a decent five-man rotation that's all on the DL right now. I mean, it is fun to watch those guys pitch. The problem is that they don't pitch as much. So I'm, I don't know when we'll be able to judge this strategy because we it's only been one year, and, you know, the sample is always going to be small. It, it seemed like two months ago you would have said it worked out pretty well because, like, they had a, you know, fairly catastrophic injury to McCarthy, and still, if you look at the, uh, you know, and, and Brandon Beachy didn't pitch at all. Uh, I forget who the other one is. Scott Baker. Is Scott Baker around? Did somebody say Scott Baker? Did I hear Scott Baker? Uh, and, <laughs> he was there. And yet, even with all that, even with like basically three-fourths of this plan doing nothing, they still managed in the aggregate uh, to get decent value because uh, Brett Anderson had a good year. But then it looks much worse today because that's not going to happen again. Unless you think that Maeda is part of this plan, in which case, then maybe it will. So I don't really know how to assess whether this is working. I guess one way to assess it is to ask you, has Kenta Maeda changed your um, expectations of him uh, now that you've seen him throw baseballs uh, in America? I think my expectations are a little higher now. He looks like he can really pitch. It's obviously hard to say in spring training, and I'm not a scout. So I can't tell you for sure, but he's on my fantasy team. I like him. I think... He'll be fun to watch. He'll be he'll be pitching every five days for now, which is something you can say about very few starting pitchers the Dodgers have signed. What uh, what has he done? I, I sort of saw like the first. I don't know. I, I kind of know what he did his first five innings or so, but I haven't really been watching much at all. What what has he done so far? He hasn't blown blown anybody away, but he seems like he has a plan. He he can locate. He does a cool dance where he swings his arms around before he takes the mound every start. Oh, that's pretty good. <laughs> he just feels he seems he seems competent to me, which which is encouraging when you're looking at no offense to Mike Bolsinger, but you're looking at Mike Bolsinger in your fifth starter spot. Actually, he might be hurt too now. So yeah, uh, thirteen and two thirds innings, thirteen strikeouts, four walks, two earned runs, four total runs. So uh, you know you could take those numbers and definitely make a. Uh, racially informed comp out of it if you wanted to what do i hear kuroki kuroda or something i don't know who you want but there's probably a non-japanese pitchers that that would remind you of too does he have a funny pitch he doesn't have a funny pitch as far as i know i think he just kind of has a kind of ability to pitch i think he's pretty um he's not like one of those you know splitter sinker type japanese pitchers he doesn't throw any um what was that pitcher who threw the pitch oh my god daisuke yeah he doesn't have anything like that. Just seems like a guy who can pitch. And of course, it alleviates the concerns somewhat that the top two prospects in the best system in baseball who are still actually in the minors 
are starters who are fairly close to the majors. How many innings or starts are you expecting out of those two guys combined in the majors this year? I would guess about 20 starts combined between the two. Uh-huh. I think you're going to see him sooner than later. Will Will one of them be by Urias, or will they all be by De Leon? I bet it'll be more De Leon, but I think Urias will get up there too. Probably not until August or September, but I think I think we'll see him both this year, starting in the majors. Yeah, he turns twenty in August, so yeah, if they waited until then, it wouldn't be quite so insane. Just I hope wasting he, him at yeah, that point. I know it's, <laughs> it's only going to last so long. Yeah. He's also he's also they've been so careful with him in workload like like almost historically so he he still hasn't thrown 90 innings in a season. So it, it would be kind of surpri- I mean I, I'd be interesting to watch how they use him in the minors in AA or AAA wherever they assign him to see if they actually have any plans for him to even still be throwing in September. Yeah, I mean last year he had that eye surgery kind of halfway through the season and that I mean, whether whether or not that was intentional in order to kind of break up his workload, I don't know. But theoretically, he should pitch all year in AAA. So we'll see. Maybe they'll just protect him, kind of keep him on like a four or five inning leash where he starts. I don't know. The Dodgers are so, everything is so intentional with them that you have to assume they have a very, very careful plan that they imagine will lead to spectacular results in September for the team. And are you expecting first half Jack Peterson to show up in the first half of 2016? No, but I'm not expecting second half Jack Peterson either. I think first half Jack Peterson is probably a little bit unfair to expect because he was you know, one of the best center fielders in the game in the first half as a rookie. And I think somewhere in between would be, would be perfectly fine. I don't think the team needs or expects anything more than that. And I don't really need or need expect anything more than that. And it, it seems like you know, once Vin Scully retires, the longest running Dodgers tradition might be Andre Ethier trade rumors. And yet Andre Ethier is the longest tenured player on this team and broke his leg and will now be disabled when his 10 and 5 rights kick in, which would make it harder to trade him even if they wanted to. Are the Dodgers and Andre Ethier actually going to make it to the end of his current contract together? I think so. I don't see why why they wouldn't at this point. He's not really tradable, and they could really use him. He his injury is kind of a big deal. You know, people are like, oh well, Carl Crawford, Scott Van like Trace Thompson. They have these outfielders who can play, sure. But Andre Ethier hit really well last year. He was young Andre Ethier again, and having a guy even as a platoon player who can just like sit in the middle of your lineup and be solidly good, you know, day in and day out. It's kind of special and rare in this era in baseball. And how excited are you for the first full season of Corey Seager? Is he going to have a season befitting the the best prospect in baseball? I'm excited. It's hard to have watched the Dodgers last year and not get excited. I think he hit like 400 in his month that he was up. I don't know if he'll have, you know, Carlos Correa type season, but having a good shortstop who's young and going to be around for a while is, is really cool. I mean, last year we had Jimmy Rollins playing shortstop and, you know, with all due respect to Jimmy Rollins' career, it was not that pretty. And there's been kind of just a position with a lot of, like, throughout my career as a Dodger fan, I think the best shortstop I've really ever seen day in and day out playing for the Dodgers is Rafael Jose Ball. Offerman. Oh, dang it. Jose <laughs> Offerman. Well, defensively, definitely. Uh, <laughs> but, yeah, it'll be, it'll be nice to have, like, a, a real Dodger shortstop who's 
theoretically going to be around for a while. And the Dodgers really took their time with the manager search this offseason. What do you think it was about Dave Roberts that made up their mind? I don't know. I mean, I think for me as a fan, you know, nostalgically, it's great to have Dave Roberts as a you know, kind of beloved former Dodger, even if he wasn't around very long in the role. He seems to have a lot of energy. He seems to really have the respect of his players in a way that even more than respect, like the admiration of his former teammates and players who kind of go out of their way to gush about him in a way that you don't see very often. It seemed like his main competition was Gabe Kapler, and maybe they felt that you know bringing Dave Roberts into the organization was worth keeping Gabe Kapler out of the manager's office for now. I'm not sure what the calculation was or what the thinking was, or maybe it was just a, the fact that Dave Roberts is an extremely charming man. Do you have any sense as a fan how the front office functions or, or what differentiates the way the front office works? We know that they have collected enough former general managers to populate three or four teams. We know that they've bought up lots and lots of smart minds and created think tanks and new initiatives and all this stuff, but they also are pretty closed mouth. They, they don't talk a whole lot about what they do. So is it just sort of a black box that you look at and say, well, I assume they're, they're doing some really smart stuff, but I don't know what it is. Or do you have any idea of, you know, what areas they have really made their mark in? I have no idea what they're doing. Um, <laughs> and, and I, and I follow the Dodgers and I, and I, you know, read the papers every day and read the blogs. I've covered the team before a little bit. And I honestly, I think they're smart guys I'm a big Farhan Zaidi fan. I don't you know. They've got a product accelerator. They've got all this stuff going on. And they're obviously kind of taking this holistic approach to, to baseball management. Like the team is just one part of it. But I'm not sure where it's going to go. I'm not sure what is achieved by having that many voices in the room. I'm not sure what whether it's as complicated as they make it seem, at least on the outside. Mm-hmm. I am watching a, a video right now on YouTube titled Dodger Baseball Woes, Jose Offerman Errors. Do you want to guess how many views? How many views does this video have? Three hundred thousand. <laughs> it's thirteen thousand. I wasn't. I figured you'd either go way high or way low. Thirteen thousand. Have the uh, newspapers down there treated the uh, Friedman Saidi regime more kindly, fairly, whatever than they did the uh, De Podesta regime? I think they've treated him pretty fairly. Probably the biggest critic was Dylan Hernandez, who's no longer on the Dodger beat for the LA Times. Your next guest, Andy McCullough, replaced him this season. But I think even Dylan was more critical of Stan Kasten in the ownership than Friedman and Zaidi. When when you're talking about you know local newspapers, you're kind of, no matter what the front office does, they're going to get criticized, whether it's for supposedly wasting Clayton Kershaw's prime or not getting the team on TV in enough houses. There's always going to be something you know to criticize the front office for. Oh. Hard to complain about a team that wins the division every year. This video is crazy because it, like in the it's this news clip of Offerman making errors, and then all of a sudden it cuts to Al Pacino in like Serpico or something, and it's not clear what point they're trying to make. <laughs> every Jose Offerman YouTube video I'm seeing right now is just him attacking that guy with a bat. Yeah. So that too. Maybe that's the that's the one that should have some Pacino clips in it. <laughs> right. Lastly, I guess the, the Dodgers are still signing international players. They're still spending a ton on that market. I guess ESL Sierra is the most recent Cuban signee. Do you think that's still a big competitive advantage for them? Or is the real boom time over? I think the boom time is kind of over in the sense that I don't think there's... I mean, I think they're kind of running out of players um, to sign. I think so much talent has left Cuba that there's not 
it's not it's not as easy for them to kind of just tap that market the way they have in the past. I think the big test will be Shohei Otani in a few years when he comes from Japan and if the Dodgers are willing to just go crazy and you know give him a two hundred million dollar contract. We'll see how dedicated they are to using that big checkbook to lure international talent. All right, so we have asked 29 previous guests for a win total prediction for the teams that they were previewing. We are not going to stop now. Tell us how many games the Dodgers will win in 2016. 94. Okay. That's, uh, is that exactly what Pakoda's forecasting, Sam? Uh, not anymore. It downgraded right. to 93 after the uh, Ethier injury, I believe. Okay. Well, I think, I think they're going to overcome that injury and win 94. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> Resilience. That is a resilient team. No one believed in the Dodgers once Andre Ethier went down. Everybody really brought yeah. the team together. Exactly. Everybody said we were a 93-win team, but we proved <laughs> them wrong. <laughs> All right. It's scrappy. It's a scrappy organization. <laughs> Well, you can read Eric Nussbaum's work at Vice Sports. You can follow him on Twitter at Eric Nuss, N-U-S. Thank you, Eric. Hey, thank you, guys. And stay tuned for Jeff talking to our pal, Andy McCullough. It helped me through the spring Just to dream of what it might become Woke up to find it been here and gone Well, you finally made it to the end of the Effectively Wild 2016 season previews. We wrap things up talking some Dodgers baseball with old friend and beat writer for the LA Times, Andy McCullough. Andy, welcome to the show. Hey, Jeff. How are you? The Dodgers are the last of our previews because they have the best Pakoda projected record. As a former Kansas City beat writer, you know how important those things are. They also topped our org rankings for 2016 on the strength of their farm system. Yet it feels like there's an awful lot of preseason doom and gloom around the team right now. Is that fair? Um, I mean, it's definitely not the, it definitely hasn't been the happiest camp. I mean, you know, you, when you come in and you lose your four starter, uh, you know, essentially for three or four months when, you know, your leadoff hitter and one of your best guys against right-handed pitchers, you know, go out for three months. And that, those are bad things. And there's been a lot of, Things and dents along the way. You know, Corey Seager's been out for two weeks with a knee sprain. Howie Kendrick is probably going to start beater on DL. Yeah, Monty Grandal has kind of been, you know, fighting off that same sort of thing in terms of starting the season, you know, backdated on the DL. So, yeah, I mean, it's it's been a bummer of a camp for sure. Well, we all remember the famous couplet, Spawn and Sane, then pray for rain. So maybe you can give <laughs> us some poetry of your own. Clayton Kershaw, then... Man, well, what rhymes with Kenta? Does anything rhyme with Maeda? Probably. I didn't actually I plan this out as well as I should have, apparently. Yeah, you should have given me, like, an email or something. I could have, you know, used a rhyming dictionary or something good. But is Maeda going to be the, the guy behind Kershaw now? Well, the number two starter right now is Kazmir, Scott Kazmir. And he, you know, hasn't had the best spring, but, you know, like, he's a veteran. He's earned the right to, um, you know, suck in spring training. And he hasn't even sucked in spring training. He just had a couple of rocky outings. But, um, you know, Maeda has, has really, you know, kind of shown well here in his first extended sort of activity in the States. Um, you know, he's got a good four-pitch mix. He's been, he's shown, uh, you know, shown more aptitude with his, curveball and his changeup, I think, than he did, 
um, in Japan, according to scouts who you know saw him when he was over there, and so you know the slider is is the big out pitch, and you know his fastball plays. So um, he's looked pretty good, and uh, you know they're going to need it. You know they're going to need him to be good um, because they do have a ton of depth. But it's not all lined up in a way that's able to contribute just yet. So um, Maeda has probably been the brightest part of camp, though, just the way he's adapted coming over here. Hasn't had any problems just yet, you know, adjusting to the schedule um, in terms of, you know, losing that day in between starts that he was used to. So it's, you know, but again, this is a guy who had some, you know, some problems with his physical. There's definitely some injury concerns there. Um, you know, it's, it's unclear what exactly the injury is, but, you know, we can figure out what it might be, uh, you know, with deductive reasoning pretty easily. So, um, or at least speculate on what it might be with deductive reasoning. Um, so, you know, there's there's concerns there, but he's, he's looks good. You know, he's looks good. He's just stuff seems like it plays, and, you know, they're going to need it. Pitching depth and pitching health will be a question even beyond Maida. They do have some pitching help coming on the farm, though. Their top arm, Julio Urias, is fairly close to Major League ready. What does the timetable for him look like in 2016, and what's the plan for his innings? Uh, that's a good question. They haven't sort of revealed that publicly just yet, but you know, they, they haven't been aggressive with him over the years. You know, they've been cautious. Um, you know, they haven't wanted to, you know, overexpose him. They haven't wanted to burn him out because he's, I believe, he's only 19 still. So, you know, they want to raise him right, I guess, and make sure he doesn't blow out at a young age. But, you know, yeah, he's a guy who you would think, you know, could contribute more in, in the second half, but. You know, because he he's never thrown a hundred innings in a season before, so it's hard to really bank on what he'll be able to give for you because he's had problems, you know, staying on the mound. He's had some um, various physical issues. You know, he didn't have the greatest spring training. He looked a little uh, shaky in outings. He had a you know a bit of a leg issue. I think it was like a hamstring or a you know a groin that kind of shut him down for a week or so. So yeah, I mean, they would like him to be there, able to contribute in the second half. But he's got to you know he's got to stay healthy and he's got to stay pitching. So, you know, it's hard to draw a plan when you don't exactly know how the guy's going to show just yet. The Dodgers had an odd offseason. While the Giants and the Diamondbacks made deals and free agent signings to try and close the gap in the NL West, Dodgers lost Zach Greinke to their division rival, and their biggest acquisition was the aforementioned Scott Kazmir. Now, most of this all occurred before you started covering the team, but in your mind, what exactly happened? What was the plan? I believe the plan uh, was to sign Zach Greinke at a reasonable rate, and once the sort of rate went beyond their comfort level, and that's believed that that changed somewhat at the at the last hour. Um, you know, they had two options. You could basically try and fix this problem with you know finding a one player who could you know fill that void, or you could go the depth route. And they clearly went for depth. And you know, I don't think if they had signed. Jeff DeMarge to do a huge contract or Johnny Cueto to do a huge contract, that would have assuaged any of the fears about losing Granky. And so, uh, because those guys are obviously somewhat flawed pitchers based on the way they performed in 2015. So, you know, they're, they decided to go with Casimir, who had been very good. He really struggled in the second half. Not really struggled, but definitely faded somewhat with Houston in the second half. Um, they took a gamble on Maeda, who is a an unknown quantity with some physical issues. And then, you know, they just kind of stocked up the depth. You know, they got Brandon Beachy, um, you know, on like, a, they're paying him like $1.75 million to pitch for Oklahoma, Oklahoma city. Um, you know, they, they have all these arms in the, in the minor league, like, uh, you know, Ross Stripling and, uh, Urias, Jose De Leon, you know, these guys, they like, um, you know, they're, they're counting on Alex Wood to, you know, be a little bit better than he showed last year. So, you know, the plan I think was to, 
Um, they're trying to thread the needle here, uh, clearly. They're trying to win in the present while also sort of building down the road and building up this player development thing. And, um, you know, that's a, that's a tough task. It's not, a, not, it's not an easy thing to do. And, and at some point, you know, um, you're going to have to decide which one wins out. And you may see that, you know, this coming summer if they become more aggressive in trading some of these prospects, you know, because they held on to these guys last summer and didn't go get Cole Hamels or anything like that. So, yeah, I mean, I think the plan is to, you know, to try and make smart, reasonable decisions that, you know, don't give up the farm just yet, but also, you know, make them, uh, you know, more able to compete in the future. And that's a, I know that's a really broad thing, but that's, you know, what it seems like they're trying to do. And they're trying to do it with a ton of money and a ton of intellectual capital. You may not know this, Andy, but my father is a diehard Dodgers fan from back in the boys of summer days, and I allowed him to take one of my questions. So here it is. How do you think Dave Roberts will handle the transition to major league manager and the established veteran-laden locker room? I don't know. I mean, you know, I, I really don't know. I guess, you know, it depends on how they play. <laughs> I think, uh, you know, I think he's done a very good job sort of establishing like an upbeat you know, sort of clubhouse. You know, the team is, they have a ton of energy. You know, they're, they, he's has a, you know, he has a pretty open line of communication with guys, you know, like he's, he played with Adrian Gonzalez. They're very close. Um, you know, he's, he worked to sort of establish a beachhead with Yaziel Puig. It was like one of the first things he did as manager was went and visited with Clayton Kershaw, you know, in Dallas. So uh, I think if they play well, you know, he probably won't have too many problems because if they play well, you know, most people are going to be happy. And, and um, they've had problems in the past trying to manage all the outfield sort of stuff, you know, because everyone wants at bats. But those things tend to take care of themselves because guys just get injured, you know, and it's, you've seen it already with Andre Ethier going down. So, um, you know, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be tough somewhat for him to, uh, I think, you know, manage the at-bats, manage the at-bats with, you know, Howie Kendrick and Chase Utley and, Scott Van Flyk wants some time. Andre or Adrian Gonzalez might not want to take you know the the set days off that he has to take. But you know Roberts has done a good job just kind of establishing the lines of communication, and you know we'll see how it plays out. I mean, no one knows how someone's going to be as a manager until they actually get in there and start doing it. I mean, people thought Matt Williams was going to be a great manager, and he was, you know, he really really struggled. So you know, you just never know. I mean, Ned Yost won the World Series last year. Uh, speaking of Ned Yost, this one is not from my father. <laughs> Has Dave Roberts said anything about your wardrobe yet? Uh, no, no, he is not. Um, you know, it, uh, it's weird uh, coming to work and not being harassed uh, at all angles um, by, you know, people. Strange. So you covered Justin Turner back when he was with the Mets, and since he left Queens, he has turned to one of the most important hitters in this Dodgers lineup when he can stay on the field. So how does his health look going into the season? <laughs> How much money is he making as a free agent this coming off season? That is a great question. I mean, he has looked fantastic this spring. He had another homer today, which is Tuesday. Um, you know, he's hitting like five fifty. Uh, he, you know, he collects an extra base hit every day. He was there. Uh, I believe he led the team in OPS last season. He, you know, had like an eight thirty OPS the season before. He's just a, you know, he's a solid third baseman. Um, he's not, you know, he's not Andre Adrian Beltre. But you know he's a he's a good third baseman. So I think you know on a on a relatively short term deal, you know he could probably command a you know a pretty sizable uh, payday. You know I don't know what like he seems like he's a better player right now than you know Chase Headley was when he entered the market and he got paid a pretty decent chunk of coin. Wasn't it like four fifty five or something like that? That's I mean I don't know. I haven't 
you know, because he's been coming back from microfracture surgery, you know, there hasn't been a, it's hard to really put a price on it because, you, you know, you need to see how he shows um, as he comes back. He looks great. You know, the, the health hasn't been an issue just yet, but it's definitely, you know, going to be something worth monitoring because microfracture surgery is no joke. Um, but yeah, I mean, if he, if he stays upright and he hits, he'll, uh, he'll make some coin this winter. Another big bat with injury problems. That may be an overarching theme to this preview is Yasiel Puig. <laughs> there are also maybe other problems with Yasiel Puig, of course. What does the team expect from him in 2016? And what does his, let's say, medium-term future in Los Angeles look like, if there is one? I mean, yeah. I mean, there's definitely a, a medium-term future. I mean, they're not, you know, they haven't traded him. And it's, you know, you, you wouldn't want to trade him now because his value is probably never been lower. Um, he's coming off, you know, his least productive season. He was... So I think he played in only 79 games. He was not particularly impactful at the plate. So, you know, they, they expect him or they hope that he can sort of recapture some of the form, you know, that he had in 2013 when he came up and he was so dynamic. They hope that, you know, he can, you know, he can be that sort of, you know, lineup catalyst once more. I mean, he's, he's in great shape. He's lost weight. They asked him to lose weight over the winter and he, you know, abided that. He looks, you know, fantastic. He's been, um, you know, back in touch with this guy, uh, Tim Bravo, who was his life coach, um, when he first came over from Cuba in 13 and, or uh, first started playing, uh, came up in 13, I should say. So, yeah, I mean, the, their hope is that he can be a, you know, a, a real offensive force again. You know, he's looked okay at times in spring, but, um, you know, he's had a couple dings and dents health wise. He's had a hamstring thing the other day that he came back from. But, yeah, I mean, the range of outcomes of Puig is pretty wide, and that's, um, you know, that's kind of why it's so fascinating to watch. You alluded to the injury issues up the middle already, but what's the status of the Dodgers double play combo, Howie Kendrick and Corey Seager, as we head to opening day? Yeah, it looks like Corey Seager is going to be ready for opening day. He's coming back from a knee sprain. Uh, he is scheduled to play on Thursday at Dodger Stadium in the first game of the freeway series. And uh, when the Dodgers are in California for the freeway series, Howie Kendrick's going to be back in Arizona. Um, you know, playing in minor league games, if playing at all, and it looks like he's going to start the year on the DL. All right, my last question for you. You are well known as one of the more musically interested beat writers out there, outside of the, okay. you know, not Bruce Springsteen edition. What are you yeah. listening to right now? Uh, what am I listening to right now? I've been listening to a lot of, uh, I- I'm getting excited for uh, a lot of new music coming out this next month or so. Uh, this band called The Hotelier is putting out a new record in May. Uh, this band called Nothing has a new record coming out that I'm pumped for. Uh, Thrice has a new record coming out that I'm uh, very excited for, and I'm going to... Uh, I'm going to see uh, this band I really like called Pine Grove. Um, they're playing in a show in L.A. on Saturday. Um, they're opening uh, for a band called uh, uh, The World is a Beautiful Place and I Am No Longer Afraid to Die. Uh, they put out a record last year called Harmlessness that's uh, fantastic, so I'm pretty pumped for that. Um, so, you know, just a lot of whiny stuff, mostly. Standard uh, operating procedure over there, then? Yeah, pretty much, the usual. So you said you had some questions for me? I have some questions for you because I've been listening to almost all these episodes and I have I have a few questions that I would like your opinion on. Okay. Okay. Why do you not have a charming regional accent like George Bissell? <laughs> I mean, it's, it's very... Connecticut is... Occasionally you'll see those like dialect surveys where you can, you can say what words you say for certain terms and it'll tell you like where you live. 
and we don't have any mm-hmm. cool like regional words like if i was in rhode island i could say like bubbler for a water fountain or something like that right like, milkshakes right. or cabinets i don't have anything like that wait milkshakes or cabinets milkshakes or cabinets yes what yeah in rhode island especially around the newport that's area. not true oh, yeah. you you made that up. i did not make that up what is coca-cola called a staircase <laughs> that makes no sense I don't know. I just have a, a nasally central Connecticut voice. It's not. It's like I'm just. Right. I'm just far enough south that I don't get like the south. I'm just far enough south and west of Worcester. I'm just far enough <laughs> like north and east of Long Island. Uh, okay. All right. Uh, would you rather? Who would you rather see wrestle Dean Ambrose at WrestleMania? Uh, Brock Lesnar or Zack Saber Jr. <laughs> Look, I. I admit to not staying up as much on the indie wrestling scene as I have in the past. I mean, I've seen a few Zack Sabre Jr. matches. I'm well aware of his reputation as well. I think uh, Lesnar is in a sort of a garbagey match. What they're going to end up doing is a much better matchup for Ambrose. You know, he came Mm -hmm. through. He came through as sort of a more of a hardcore deathmatch CZW guy anyway. Right. I don't think he really is in his best mode sort of doing what, uh, you know, mat-based stuff. I think just let him and Lesnar have fun brawling and bleeding and selling, and it'll be fine. I think that match. Right. Will, I think that match will tear down the house too. There. Yeah, I think I think this WrestleMania is going to be an abject disaster. Um, there's there's literally not one match I want to see because Lesnar they booked so strong, so well for like. 15 months or so, you know, like up until basically, up until, uh, like Taker appeared Wrestle- in the, uh, Rollins match. I didn't even mind the WrestleMania finish so much. It's not what I would have done, but I didn't. Yeah. Mind it. it's. I think, I think that was definitely where things went awry, but I, I understand. Like, I did not like it. I, I did not like it. I thought they just should have kept the strap on Lesnar and they should have kept it on him for like three years until Reigns was finally ready. But I think if you had to take it off him, that was a, a better route than just having Reigns go over but yeah, basically, like since Taker showed up, it like just completely destroyed the hottest guy they had in the company, and now they've got him, you know, like where I'm supposed to believe that he can actually he actually has to go to work with this guy Ambrose who can't even throw a punch. Like it's just it's yeah, it's, 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 I just think it's going to be. I just think the 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 misuse of Brock Lesnar as an as an asset is uh, is basically malpractice. Okay, uh, last question: Which of these interviews was your favorite to do? favorite um well, uh, i recorded with john darnell of the mountain goats for the cubs preview and that was by far my favorite oh, well, all right that's pretty good i, I did the best good. i could did not sound like a total mark during it i don't know if i actually accomplished that the listenership will have to be the judge of that <laughs> right all right well that's all i got all right andy mccullough right, this was fun yeah we've completely derailed it but it's the last show I've, yeah, there was no other stuff. pro wrestling talk in any of the other ones and even right. I have my limits. Andy McCullough, the Los Angeles Dodgers beat writer for the LA Times. You can follow him on Twitter, at McCullough Times. Thanks for this. Anytime. All right, that's it for today. Thank you to Eric Nussbaum and Andy McCullough for coming on. That is it for the team preview series. We've gotten through the whole thing for the fourth time. Huge thank you to George Bissell and Jeff Paternostro for helping us with the second segments of those shows. They did a great job getting guests and doing the interviews and making things easier for me from a production perspective. So thank you very much to them. If you enjoyed their work, please tell them so. Follow them on Twitter at George Bissell and at Jeff Paternostro and let them know their work was appreciated. By the way, we have collected links to every one of our preview podcasts in one post, which is on the BP homepage right now. So if you missed a few and you want to go back 
and catch up. That's an easy place to do it. If you haven't listened to any besides this Dodgers episode, well, it's about 22 hours of audio. So if you start now, you do have time to binge before the first pitch of 2016. You can support the podcast on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash effectively wild. Today's five patrons to thank Joshua Hartline, Sean Newkirk, Nathan Wamser, Brinkley Benson, and Dylan Lake. Thank you. You can buy our book, The Only Rule Is It Has to Work. It's the story of how Sam and I tried to do our best Andrew Friedman impressions with an independent league baseball team last summer. You can pre-order the book now at Amazon and Barnes & Noble. Comes out on May 3rd, but if you order early, you might get it early. You can join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash effectively wild and rate and review and subscribe to the show on iTunes. You can get the discounted price on the Baseball Reference Play Index by using the coupon code BP when you subscribe. And that's it. We made it through another off-season together. Thanks for listening to the show through the long, not-so-cold winter. Enjoy the games on Sunday. We will be back on Monday. Each step that I took with you But one thing closer to my mind